Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. In this week's episode, we hear about the border standoff between India and China and the impact of COVID-19 on the European Union. But first, two of our moderately grumpy strategists, Dr. Malcolm Davis and Dr. Marcus Hellier, bring you a wide-ranging update on maritime and space issues. They discuss Marcus's recent report on offshore patrol vessels. They talk about SpaceX launches and much more. Well, Marcus, uh, you've just released a special report uh, from concentrated vulnerability to distributed lethality or how to get more maritime bang for the buck with our offshore patrol vessels. It's a really interesting paper advocating a greater number of offshore patrol vessels. So I'd like you to perhaps tell our listeners exactly what you're saying in the report, why it's significant and, and why should we do it? Okay, thanks, Malcolm. Well, yes, the title is a a bit of a mouthful, but I think the concepts in it are relatively straightforward. The basic issue is, is now with the delivery of the air warfare destroyers complete, uh, defence isn't actually getting any more combat ships for another decade. So what I'm trying to look at is how uh, defence can get more capability into service sooner uh, to give it more firepower, but also to help it in that long transition that we've embarked upon to a future that makes much more use of autonomous systems. So in a sense, it's trying to kill uh, a couple of birds with one stone. So one of the really good things that's happening in the Naval Shipbuilding Program is the Arafura class offshore patrol vessel. They're a very capable vessel, quite large. So other countries use vessels of that size as combat vessels. Uh, It has a very advanced combat system, has very advanced communication system. So in in many regards, it, it is a warship. The only problem is it doesn't actually have much in the way of weapons. So why didn't we do that? When we bought these, why didn't we fit them out as warships? Well, I think Defence, to its credit, is trying to kind of keep focused on the original purpose of the program, which was to uh, acquire constabulary vessels. So essentially they would be a very large version of uh, the patrol boats. So we know the patrol boats were having trouble uh, operating in the open ocean, so the much larger offshore patrol vessels would be an enhancement in the constabulary role and defence has has stuck to that. What I'm saying is uh, what we actually need is more combat power and the OPVs can do that. What I'm not uh, advocating is uh, not qu- you've spoken before about acquiring corvettes, the Navy acquiring corvettes, and uh, what I'm suggesting is not quite the same. So to me, corvette is multi-role vessel, so small frigate. So able to do a whole bunch of different tasks. What I'm actually saying is, now let's keep it very simple. So let's have a number of variants of the OPV, but each one is optimised to do one thing well, not trying to do everything, because that tends to be where what drives cost, what drives technical risk and what drives schedule. Mm. Now, you talked about expanding the fleet. Can you give us some numbers? So Defence currently is ordering 12. Uh, I'm saying let's look at about 18. Defence also uh, has said that it's going to use the offshore patrol vessel hull as the basis of its future mine countermeasure fleet. So it's moving away from traditional mine hunting to using autonomous systems uh, operated from outside the minefield. That's a really good thing, So, but that would be a separate fleet. So I'm saying let's expand from 12 to approximately 18. I'm not hard over on the numbers. Um, and that, But that starts to give you mass. Now, one of the challenges with 
that the Navy has. It only has 11 surface combat vessels at the moment. So eight frigates and three air warfare destroyers. You know, if you follow the the three-for-one rule of thumb that for every three vessels you have, you can uh, routinely get one to sea. That means that normally defence has four, maybe could surge to five combat vessels at sea. When you look at our huge area of operations, that's not a lot. What I'm saying is if you've got 18 OPVs and noting that we can build them very quickly and I suspect we could probably produce one every six months, we could actually increase that 11 ship fleet to something much closer to 30 Mm. before the end of the decade, in fact, before the first future frigate Mm. arrives. And you could probably do that for the cost of one submarine or one or two Mm. frigates. So So could you uh, develop the OPV batch two as a larger ship that would be a corvette? It's possible. So um, Lurson, the designer of the OPV, has a number of designs and some are slightly larger. One would imagine that they're basically just variations on the same vessel, so it would not be a massive design change to do a larger mm-hmm. vessel. So potentially down the track you could do that. But what, what I'm saying is, okay, so let's do a, uh, let's say an anti-submarine warfare variant. So put on a towed array sonar, um, you know, maybe some uh, unmanned systems that are optimised for ASW, and that is there to simply do ASW. Now, the, the unmanned systems is really critical. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so we, we both noticed that this week there was an announcement the US Navy is pursuing uh, 50 of its extremely large uh, unmanned underwater vessels, the Orca. So tell us about the Orca. Well, look, it's uh, not meant to be a t- torpedo tube launched UUV like we commonly associate uh, with the term. It's an independent large platform. It's about 51 feet long. It's designed to be able to travel thousands of kilometres across the ocean by itself, undertake a mission, whether that mission is intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, mine countermeasures or even use lethal force such as delivery of um, torpedoes or land attack cruise missiles. So this is in effect a a small unmanned submarine that is designed to work alongside manned platforms or crewed platforms if you want to call them that. And uh, I think it's really the way of the future is this manned-unmanned mix and that's where the Australian Navy needs to go. So it's very interesting that the US Navy is investing heavily in these sort of platforms and I think that Australia should be doing the same thing in uh, cooperation with the US Navy. Yeah, I mean, uh, the US Navy is clearly much further ahead uh, of the Australian Navy in this regard. At least in mindset, you know, in terms of how they see unmanned systems. Uh, Whereas I get the impression that we're seeing the Australian Navy is very much still experimenting with very limited capabilities and unwilling to leap ahead and take a risk on something much more capable. Now, admittedly, the US Navy's got many more resources than Australia does, um, so obviously we can't match them in everything we do, but I agree that you know we should be leveraging off what the US yeah. Navy is doing and potentially joining the ORCA program mm. as some kind of cooperative program. All right. Well, Let, let's, let's move on to space mm-hmm. um, because sort of like I think there's been some interesting developments in space. So... Well, first of all, there's SpaceX. So first manned launch from the United States since 2011, I believe. Mm-hmm. I mean, that you must be quite excited about that. Uh, look, I got up uh, twice early in the morning at, at 4.30 in the morning to watch it. The first one was scrubbed due to bad weather. The second one went off beautifully. Um, this is the first uh, crewed launch from the U.S., uh, since 2011, since the final shuttle mission. And I think it really does open up a new vista 
for human spaceflight uh, for the Americans in terms of the ability not only to get to the International Space Station but to be able to do other things in low Earth orbit. So it really is quite significant. I, I think one of the really interesting things is, is that private public cooperation model. So NASA doesn't own SpaceX. SpaceX is a private yep. company. I think, you know, that's one of the key features of the Space 2.0 mm -hmm. model. And I think we're starting to see signs of that here in Australia. Mm -hmm. So DST, the Defence Science and Technology Organisation, put out its new uh, strategic plan this week. There's a lot of space in there, but one of the themes there seems to be cooperating with the private sector and with academia. Mm -hmm. They're not trying to do everything in yeah. it in-house. So is that the model for us down the future? I think, think it is. And you're having an increasingly active um, commercial space sector in Australia. Uh, if you want to talk about space launch, for example, Gilmore Space Technology on the Gold Coast, Black Sky Aerospace also in Queensland, Hypersonics uh, in Queensland, all developing space launch capabilities with Gilmore probably in the lead. And Gilmore's just signed an agreement with Department of Defence towards developing a three-stage launch vehicle to put small satellites in orbit. So when we talk about the DST plan, uh, they talk about resilient um, advanced satellites, smart satellites, that Gilmore launcher, the Eris-3, is perfect for launching those small satellites into, into Earth orbit. So you are starting to see that public-private partnership in space emerge here as well. Mm -hmm. And just on the sort of space and undersea area, I read a very interesting report out of ANU this week by some Australian scientists who looked at the possibility of the seas becoming transparent, mm -hmm. potentially to space-based technologies. And they, uh, in their view, it's likely to highly likely that by the 2050s, the seas will be transparent. So we'll be a, you will be able to essentially see submarines anywhere. Which is another good reason to invest in unmanned systems. You exactly. don't want to be putting a crew on a submarine in harm's way if they're going to be easily detected. I think that's exactly right. And I think we're sort of heading in the right direction in space to have those detection and surveillance technologies. But I think in terms of subsea platforms, we need to be moving away, not necessarily immediately, but slowly and surely, greater use of unmanned platforms. I think that's exactly right. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Malcolm. Next, ASPE researcher and India expert, Akriti Bakawat, speaks to Nathan Rusa, researcher with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, they discussed the recent border standoff between China and India, known as the Line of Actual Control, and they touch on Nathan's satellite imagery analysis that looks at recent developments in the area. So India and China have been engaged in yet another standoff along their Line of Actual Control since the beginning of May. Uh, while the actual details remain murky, I have my colleague Nathan uh, Ruza with me, who has done some fantastic satellite imagery work um, on the region and uh, including analysis of Indian and Chinese positions. So I'm going to speak to him about what exactly has happened and uh, whether the reports in Indian media about Chinese intrusion into um, Indian territory is uh, true or not. Nathan, uh, what is your reading of the situation? Yeah, so basically right now in the Ladakh sector of the Chinese-India border, there's three main skirmish areas, and each of those have had pretty significant development in the last month or so since, since the start of May. So we've looked at recent satellite imagery from the last couple of weeks of May, and we can see that there has been an increase in positions on both sides, almost to the line of control. So in one particular valley, so I think it's the Galwan Valley, there is a very small Chinese position, which is essentially right on the line of control. 
And that's, I think, where a lot of these tensions are coming from. But that being said, there doesn't seem to be any permanent positions of either forces beyond the line that separates them and that has separated them for for years. Um, So I think a lot of the claims of thousands of soldiers being in Indian territory aren't based on, I guess, an honest reading of the line of actual control, but based on Indian claims that have not stood stood on the ground for many for many decades now. Right. Um, but yeah, there has definitely been a build up from both sides along that line of actual control. And in a few cases, it looks like there is certain evidence that suggests that Chinese forces have been regularly crossing a few hundred meters. Sure into Indian territory, but there is certainly no permanent positions there. Sure. sure. Just to uh, get some context from you, uh, what is the basis of um, how we see the line of actual control, if you could? Because I think that would be uh, how we're sort of making these uh, making this analysis. Isn't that right? Yes. So the line of actual control isn't something that's really detailed well in maps. And so when it's coming to a few hundred meters, it's tricky to get a perfect idea of where that lies. So I've been looking for the um, the official Indian version of the line of actual control. And the best way that I've found that is by looking at the exact boundaries of nature reserves, which the whole Indian side of that border is a wildlife refuge. Sure. It's like officially gazetted as a wildlife refuge. And therefore, the Ministry of Environment has detailed maps and geographic data showing the edge of those those wildlife reserves. Right. And in most cases, I think it's assumed that that is congruent with the claim of Indian Territory right. and at least their version of the line of actual control as it exists on the ground. Right. So how would you explain the the totally conflicting reports that we're seeing by one side, I mean, in the Indian media, which is, I mean, the debate has become really heated up, where one side is claiming that um, there are Chinese soldiers on Indian Territory and uh, the other side saying, that's not right, that's not true and the Chinese soldiers are on um, the Chinese side of the LAC. So what what is what do you think is going wrong there? So I think a lot of that comes down to one of the areas of um tension is Pangongso. Mm-hmm. Um and that's so that's sort of a border lake that's split down the middle between Indian and Chinese control. And in previous years we have seen skirmishes along that border. So the way that the geography of that lake is sort of marked is in fingers. So sort of peninsulas running out into the lake of I guess it's mostly just sort of the slithers of mountains. Right. And so there's about eight fingers across that lake. Yep. Maybe a few more, actually. But generally, Indian and Chinese forces separate on finger four. Right. But Chinese forces claim the line of actual control is actually at finger two. Yep. While the Indian forces claim it's actually at finger eight. Right. So there's this sort of six peninsula section, which is a few kilometers long. Sure which is part of that disputed understanding of the LAC. Right. And so Indian forces have long had a military base within that disputed territory. Sure. But Chinese forces haven't. Yeah. But in recent months, in in the second half of May, China established a a position, I think it's about 500 metres back from, 500 or a couple of kilometres back from where that actual line that separates the forces are, but it is new Chinese positions in what India considers to be Indian territory. Sure. So I think that's where a lot of those figures are coming from. And when yeah. you when you hear 7,000, I suspect that's referring to that yeah. base because that is there, there is diff- differing interpretations of sure. the LAC. But. Sure. So you maintain that Chinese soldiers have um, developed posts closer to their line of the LAC the, or their perception of what is uh, the line of actual control and they've actually not entered into Indian on the Indian side. Oh. 
right. Yeah, so so yeah. previously Chinese forces have regularly patrolled yeah. up to that position. Yeah. And so it's it's nothing new sure. that there's Chinese forces there, but what is new is the permanent position. And that's happened in a few different places where positions have been pushing closer to the line of actual control. Right. And uh, would you like to comment on uh, why this development has taken place from the, why uh, so much activity has taken place um, from from at least from China's perspective? So I think what started a lot of these tensions is is a new road that was being built in early May. Another one of the hotspots is the Galawan Valley, which is where the Chinese forces now have a position right on the line of control. Right. But prior to that, I, I believe prior to that, Indian forces was, were establishing a position about 500 metres back. And that's a lot close to the line that they had previously, which would have been several kilometres away. Yeah. And the fact that they were building a road to that position sort of suggests that it's a meant to be a permanent position rather than just a couple of tents that stay until the winter and then get packed back up. Yeah. Um, so I think China saw that as a change of the status quo on the ground, sure. saw that as a maybe not an intrusion into their territory, but an intrusion, sev- like a push several kilometres further, closer to the line than what had previously been occupied by India. Right. And so in response, they they have done the same thing and set up large positions about a kilometre back from the line and one sort of small trip line position right on the line. Right. Um so Nathan, going back, I think you did some uh, imagery work, uh, satellite imagery work, uh, looking at the Doklam standoff that uh, took place in 2017. Would you like to sort of draw some comparisons between these two standoffs and whether they're similar in any way or whether there are differences? Um, so Doklam is a bit of an interesting situation because it occurred in what is internationally recognised as neither India or China in, in um, Bhutanese territory. So I think there is a fair few differences there. And um, India had more of a, I guess, strategic reason to prevent China accessing that hilltop, which would let them monitor troop movements across India a lot better than they can. Right. But I think when we compare it to the Doklam situation, which I think that's important to put that in context, because right now soldiers along that Bhutanese border are a lot closer to each other. So I think there's less than 100 metres between the furthest Indian position and the furthest Chinese position in the Doklam sector, right, which is a lot closer than they are anywhere in Ladakh. Yeah. So I think when you're sort of trying to get an idea of where these hostilities stand and how quickly it could escalate, mm. there there is sort of risk, but there is the status quo now yeah. in Doklam is one that seems a lot more serious and prone to accidental escalation than in Ladakh. Sure. Yeah, I think that's... that's um pretty insightful. I'd just like to end by saying that uh, from my reading, the situation has become highly politicized in India. Um, and uh, it's quite troubling that uh, if you sort of adhere to one particular view, which says that uh, that Chinese soldiers ha- uh, have intruded into the line, uh, in, uh, into the Indian uh, side of the LAC, you're automatically branded uh, anti, uh, an anti-national or, uh, you know, anti-Modi uh, government. Uh, but if you're, um, if you take the view that in Chinese soldiers uh, have not crossed uh, the, the LSC into the Indian side of the LSC, then you're uh, automatically branded a Modi supporter or um, a, a Hindu nationalist. So um, from that perspective, I think it, it's safe to say that we might be branded <laughs> Hindu nationalists, but that's not true. So yeah, that's, I, I didn't, I didn't realise that sort of dichotomy yeah, until it appeared in my yeah, Twitter it mentions. Is, yes, yes. So uh, I've been noticing you getting attacked 
uh, on Twitter. But uh, we just like to clarify that uh, we stick by our analysis, and um, it's it's based on uh, our our objective reading of the situation. A lot of my previous satellite analysis has, analysis has been a lot less friendly to Modi, especially <laughs> in the Pakistan disputes. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks very much, Nathan. It was great talking to you. Yeah. No. Thank you. It's good to good to sort of put it all out. Okay. Great. Finally, research interns Alexandra Pasco and Daria Impiambato talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the European Union and how the EU can overcome this crisis collectively. They discuss the EU's plan for economic recovery and how the establishment of the proposed EU Recovery Fund could strengthen the Union. Hi everyone, Kelly, thank you for the introduction. Um, so Alex and I today are going to talk about the impact that COVID-19 had on the European Union and how the Union is uh, planning to, to recover from the crisis. So COVID had a devastating impact on many countries within the EU and overall there have been more than 150,000 uh, deaths and economic loss um, down to minus uh, 3.8% um, in GDP. But it is expected that um, the economic losses will increase over the course of this year. Um, at the beginning, the EU had a very late response, especially in helping um, Southern European countries like Italy, um, that was really struggling um, to cope at the, at the start. And um, a lot of the countries sought help elsewhere, for example, in, in China. However, it seems now that the EU is getting back on their feet. And the question we want to answer is, how can Europe overcome this crisis um, as a union? So Alex, why, how about you tell us a bit more about the European Commission promising plan? Yes, absolutely. So on the 27th of May, the European Commission announced a 750 billion euro recovery fund in response to the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. The proposed recovery fund would see the European Commission use its strong credit rating to borrow funds on behalf of the EU member states, so jointly raise European debt, and this money would then be funneled through the EU budget and distributed to the hardest hit member states. This would largely be in the form of grants, but with a small proportion of the funding going out as loans. The proposal does say that the money will need to be paid back, but over a very long period of 30 years, so between the years 2028 and 2058. But I think the proposal can kind of be seen as a combination of the ideas that came before it. There was and probably still is a bit of disagreement among the member states regarding where the money for economic recovery should come from. Uh, initially, we saw quite a big divide between two groups of member states, uh, one led by France, Italy and Spain, and the other led by Germany, the Netherlands and Austria. Uh, but this situation changed quite drastically last month when Germany made a complete U-turn in its position and put forward a joint proposal with France. And you can see a lot of the ideas that were present in the German-French proposal, they're now in the current EU Commission proposal. So ideas like joint debt raising, um, the use of grants and not loans, and a number of other ideas around linking investment with the EU's Green Deal 
and increasing the EU's industrial and technological presence in strategic sectors. So it seems like Germany's change in mind is very significant. What are the reasons behind it? Yeah, well, I think there are a number of reasons why Germany changed its position. Firstly, I think the unprecedented nature of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, makes it quite difficult to justify old policy prescriptions. I think there was a realisation from Germany that, quote-unquote, northern member states can't continue to saddle up weaker southern economies with unsustainable levels of debt due to the severity of the economic crisis um, that's resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think the seriousness of the problem really um, motivated this realisation that much more EU solidarity is required and EU member states really need to be shown the value that the EU can offer them in terms of helping them weather an economic crisis. I think Merkel's leadership has also been strengthened by Germany's very competent response to COVID-19, and I think that's provided her with a fair bit of political capital and increased popularity, allowing her to uh, shift her position on this issue, uh, bring it in line with the French, and hopefully they can use their combined influence within the bloc to forge consensus on the recovery proposal. I will also mention that the ruling from Germany's constitutional court in early May may have also played a slight role. So that ruling cast doubt on the legality of the European Central Bank's bond buying program. So I think this resulted in the idea that the EU can't continue to rely on the European Central Bank and monetary policy alone in responding to a crisis like this. There also needs to be robust fiscal policy to promote economic recovery and stimulus. But this sort of turns my mind to what we can expect going forward and whether the EU will be able to forge the necessary consensus amongst the 27 member states. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about where the opposition to this proposal is coming from. Yeah, sure. So as it often happens with decisions within the European Commission, it, it is really hard to reach a consensus. And this time, four countries have stepped up against the SIG proposal. Uh, and there are Austria, the Netherlands, Denmark and Sweden who like to refer to themselves as the frugal four. So they, um, after the, the recovery fund was uh, proposed, they presented their own draft for EU recovery fund in a non-paper and sent it to the European Union capitals on the 23rd of May. So this alternative plan basically um, wanted to substitute the grants with uh, the repayable loans, which comes from a very low trust uh, on behalf of these countries uh, that Southern European uh, nations will be able to repay. So according to these four countries, the fund should not lead to any debt mutualization and be closed after two years rather than three. Italy, which was probably the main beneficiary of, of the plan, getting a, the biggest portion of um, the, the grants, has criticized the frugal four 
saying their stance is defensive and inappropriate to the current crisis. And this has shown one more time the north-south divide um, that cripples the European Union, especially during major crises such as the global financial crisis and the migrant crisis, um, where these two sets of countries can hardly ever reach um, consensus. And some opposition has also come from central and um, Eastern European countries who have always been net beneficiaries of European Union budget spending and they are worrying that they will lose out to Southern European states going forward after this proposal. That's really interesting. So in light of the current situation, how significant do we think this proposal is? Well, according to a lot of um, economic experts in particular, the proposal is very significant because countries in the bloc uh, have never pulled their debt together this way before. And especially because borrowing on capital markets on on such a huge scale uh, never, never happened before. The EU governments are also generally worried about uh, giving too much power to Brussels and have been in the past opposed to um, common EU taxes. But um, if this plan is approved, it would mean that it would create precedence for a massive common EU tax that would might change the future of digital taxes and corporate taxes in the European Union. But in my opinion, um, the most significant part of proposal is uh, the EU pledge to intensify its spending on the European Green Deal. So there is a massive focus on environmental policies and the Commission is really trying to uh, prevent um, environmental policy to suffer too much because of the crisis. And to be fair, it would also be a very much needed political victory for the bloc, especially after such troubled times uh, following Brexit. And I think the union really needs a win right now. So we have talked about the European Union, but um, we expect this fund to also have some global repercussions. Um, Alex, what do you think this would mean for Australia? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think it can often be hard to immediately recognise the relevance of the EU for Australia, but I think a couple of the points you make are quite relevant for us. I think the point about linking investments and uh, economic recovery to sort of sustainable and green growth initiatives is something that Australia could look at. And I also think the political win that this economic recovery fund could constitute for the European Union uh, would definitely be beneficial for Australia in terms of having a strong and unified partner going forward. I think recent events at the World Health Assembly really highlight that Australia and the EU share sort of common approaches to international relations and overlapping interests. So the diplomatic efforts that we saw, uh, corralling of international support for the independent review into COVID-19, really emphasise what two like-minded partners can achieve on the international stage. And I think 
given the increasing number of global problems that Australia faces, increasing great power rivalry in our region, we will need support in addressing all these things. So a strong and unified European Union is very much in our interest. Thank you for that, Alex, and thank you for joining me today. Also, thanks everyone for listening. If anyone is interested in knowing more about the European Union um, in a world after COVID, Alex and I have written a chapter for the next ASPI publication after COVID-19. And everyone is more than welcome to have a read. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Policy, Guns and Money. A huge thank you to all of our guests this week. If you have any thoughts on the topics we've discussed here today, please tweet us at aspie underscore org. We will be back with another episode next week.